Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, listeners. Imogen here, letting you know all about the latest Rusty Quill original podcast on Neon Inkwell, The Pit Below Paradise. The Pit Below Paradise is a US coming-of-age tale set years in the future, in the ruins of a burnt world. Small communities struggle in the ashes, and in Paradise Village, Dorian is set to sacrifice himself for the hope of a better tomorrow. At least, that's what he thought. But when the date of prophecy is pulled into question, Dorian's whole world is turned on its side. Forced to attend college to keep up appearances, Dorian meets Will, a former gravedigger with no reason to suspect his vibrant new roommate might soon be facing death, and Ruth, a returned runaway, trying to make peace with the past. As Dory only just starts to learn about herself, she is forced to choose whether she still believes everything she was told growing up, or whether she wants to place her trust in a wider, more daunting world that she's only just come to know. The Pit Below Paradise is available now on Neon Inkwell, our ongoing home for full cast fiction podcasts written by creators from all around the world. Just search Neon Inkwell wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, Alex here. I'd just like to take a moment to thank some of our patrons. Ben Hinder, Amanda, Raw Granavang, Julia Duffy, Linus T, Emma Steiner, Josh, Jill Kozo, Emily Goodrich, Rong Cello, Rowan Enjol Radical, Paul Gregory, Alex Self, Zyka, Panko, Ali Martins, Kat, Sabrina Howes, Naywall Dark. Thank you all. We really appreciate your support. If you'd like to join them, go to www.patreon.com forward slash rustyquill and take a look at our rewards. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Stella Firma. This is a little different to the uh, normal Stella Firma episodes. We are not meeting with uh, Trexel and David Seven today. Instead, I am here with Tim Meredith. Hello. 
and Ben Meredith. Hello. Who, of course, are the two stars of our show, to talk about the science of Stella Firma, whether there is any, what they know, and most definitely what they don't know. No, uh, nothing, everything. Right, yeah. show's over. So done. <laughs> Oh, cool. That was quick. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cut the recording there. No one needs to hear anymore. Uh, okay. Uh, I am Bryn Monroe. I am a member of the Rusty Call Gaming Podcast, which is why I'm here today, because basically I know these reprobates from way back. I think I've been brought on to host this very special episode due to the fact that many, many years ago now, I studied theoretical physics You're a uh, science at boy, university. You? You're a science boy. I am very much a science boy with a specialism absolutely in cosmology. And my, my master dis- dissertation was on the thermodynamic properties of black holes. So uh, as you can imagine, there have been several points during the year uh, first season of Stella Firma when I've winced heavily uh, while listening uh, and we're going to see how many of those I can remember today and uh, talk about what what exactly what what thought has gone into these episodes sure. would you okay. would you like me to do my bona fides yeah me too Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, let's let's, let's get some let's, let's let's get some credentials from yeah. the two Meredith brothers uh, Ben do you want to start with your credentials <laughs> okay then yes okay so uh, no, so I am Ben Meredith, B-A-M-A. I think the M-A just replaces the B-A. I, I actually don't know how it works. But my B-A is in English literature and my M-A is in creative and critical writing. So lots of science in there. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. Mm. The science of language. Mm. Uh, uh, that's got, linguistics I... and it's, oh, it's not what thing. I did. <laughs> not even that. Nope. Um, uh, my name is Tim Meredith and I did a, a B-A in politics. You could do a bachelor's of science, but I chose not to. Nice, nice. If I have to state my formal qualifications, then uh, BA ONS, MA Cantab, MSC, probably something else too that I'm forgetting. But it, yeah. I don't think that's terribly important. The the important bit is my my high level knowledge of of cosmology and and very specifically black holes. But black holes really aren't the focus of Stella Firma. The focus of Stella Firma, I, I'm pretty sure Trexel stressed this heavily in the very first episode, mm. is that Stella Firma designs planets. Not moons. Not moons. Not, not solar systems. Planets. planets. Unless we design a moon, in which case sometimes moons. Sometimes moons, but but mostly as a an add-on to a planet. It doesn't not, like it. you wouldn't doesn't you like wouldn't design it. a moon all by itself. It's like it's like building a conservatory. You know, people do it, but it doesn't make you uh, an architect. It just makes you sure. uh, you know a glass merchant. <laughs> sure. Okay. So so I think my first question for the two of you is is what do you think a planet is? That sounds like a trick question, and I'm yeah, I was oh, going to say that. Oh, <laughs> pretty sure I know the answer. Ev- every every question I ask is going to be a trick question on some should level, we, guys. Should we go? Should we go? Uh, should we b- both give our thoughts, or do we want to take them in turn? Like I'll do one, and Ben will do one. I, I think the normal chaos produced normal from chaos. the meeting of your two minds will will do just fine. Well, I'll shout then. So my thoughts: um, are, I think a planet is a big collection of matter around a single point, and it's gone hard. And then sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Okay, so so my understanding is you've got like a big, you got a big load of dust, like you got just dust, this from somewhere, and some of the dust is more 
in one place than the rest of the dust. And so it's got a little tiny bit of gravity and then more dust goes, well, that that's where the pie is happening. And so that gets there and then that <laughs> naturally increases the gravity and they're like, whoa, guys, have you seen that dust? Come over here. And then that just sort of gets really out of hand until all the dust sure, is in one sure, place. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, you're, you're talking about the planet creation process here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. when I say what do you think a planet is, what yeah. I mostly mean is how, how do scientists classify what's a star, what's a planet, what's a moon, I'll what's a, a comet, yeah, you go, you go. What's, a, what's a dwarf planet. Sure. Uh, so I think a planet is a, um, a celestial object above a certain size which orbits um, or has a sustained orbit around a star. Ooh, it yeah, sounded confident. That's, that's the that's the basic that's the basic definition. To be classified as a planet, there are a few other criteria though, which you, you, you've 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 sort of touched on there. So one of the really important ones is the uh, the orbit. So it's got to be orbiting a star. If it's orbiting another planet or well, a star system technically, because you can have binary and trinary stars. But importantly, uh, you're right that the planet has to be a certain size. It also has to be a certain regularity of orbit. If it's not, a, if it's not, a, if the orbit is not basically roughly circular, mm. then it does not meet the uh, the requirement to be classified as a planet. So, is there therefore no such thing as a rogue planet? Because as soon as it sort of starts to get out of hand, it loses its planet privileges, and it's like you're just a lump now. Essentially, yes. <laughs> uh, at, th- at that point, it becomes a comet or an asteroid, or yeah. A, a, I mean, a ro- rogue planet is very much a. We've got an interesting thing here because there's obviously the classifications known to science and the yeah. classifications known to science fiction, sure. and there is some overlap. They don't necessarily always uh, mesh perfectly. So a, a rogue planet is much more of a science fiction content. You know, a, a, I, I don't know what a scientist would call it. Probably something silly like a roaming astronomical body. They wouldn't, but yeah, it, it's, it's te- technically not a planet. Sure. So okay. how how many of the planets we've we've allegedly designed in season one of Stella Firma do you think meet the technical uh, scientific definition of a planet? Probably none. Probably none. Because <laughs> I don't think we often talk about... I think there's maybe a couple of mentions of uh, of one of our quote-unquote planets orbiting something, but that doesn't often come up. Like, we're, they're normally just sort of hanging in, in just sort of space. <laughs> I, this this is something I've always wondered. I mean, what what in your minds, what is the what is the uh, the sort of the backstory behind Stella Firma? When a client is coming to Stella Firma with, with, a, with a request for a planet, mm. do they already have a star? Are you also providing the star? Well, I assume the build team just works with that. Do you just know a, a bunch of stars? It's like... Are you, so you're making the stars as well as the planets? I don't think... It's like it's like if you were building a house, you wouldn't also have to build the school that it's, it's nearby in order to give amenities or, like, build the water grid. You know, like, we're just... We're using the stars as they are, and then you yeah. just, like, pitch up well, I mean, and boom, there's the, a planet. The, the star is more like the ground that the house sits on in this metaphor, the space basically. Gra- you're right, Bryn. It's the space ground. Thank it you. It is the space ground, Yeah. So you, you've got to have you've got to have your star before you can have your planet. So you yeah. need to own. I presume you need to own a star system where you want the planet to or, go. You know, you rent your spot, yeah, like a parking space. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. Or maybe you could have that whole thing where people who own uh, like static trailers own the trailer, but not the ground, and then one day they sell the trailer park, and it's like, cool, get your house out of here, and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, just suddenly the sun implodes, and yeah. Get your planet out oh, of here, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Sun, sun's imploding is a is a big problem, uh, I imagine, for, for Stella, old Stella Firma Limited. It really, really affects Trexel. the property values. It really yeah. hits them hard. Yeah. It does. It does. It's a shame. 
one of the things that's, that has come up in a few different, uh, very much in the earlier recordings, is we discussed potential sizes and shapes for planets as well. And it, it seemed to me that as we got further through the season, you guys stopped worrying so much about the size and the shape of, of, of the, the planets you were designing. They stopped worrying about a lot of things, I think, as, <laughs> as things went on. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, Ben, what did we, what did we, we definitely had a scale really early on. And I think it might have been along the lines of small one, a little bit bigger, pretty big, quite big and really big. Is that is that roughly roughly how well, we classified them? Whatever the scale was, it was vague and unremembered. Yeah, <laughs> a vague and unremembered scale. And obviously, you, you, I mean, you mentioned Ben that a, a planet technically has to be of a certain size to to meet the, the meet the definition of a planet. Um, but I think we can assume that all stellar firmas basic planet shapes meet that meet that definition. I definitely say that the planets that Trexel makes trend towards the big because there's yes. there's just always a lot of stuff on them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, go big or go home. Is always is is tattooed on my legs, and it's what he says when he orders a triple at the Cosmic Lounge. Yes, and then I drop the glass. Um, although I do think the first one we ever did was explicitly after all that moon chat and all that planet chat. I think the first thing we did was a trough moon, and I may yeah, have yelled. Trough the, I've yelled trough moon quite a bit, so I'm nothing if not inconsistent. I think I think there is there is an issue here though, which is is basically that the, the human brain really is bad at comprehending the size of a planet because. I mean, Earth is pretty average as the size of a planet goes. And uh, I mean, I've listened to every single episode. I love the show. Big fan. It would be awkward but... if you if you said I listened to three and I'm, it's not it's not for me. <laughs> there would be. I mean, I got to suggest one of the planets. You uh, did. We'll, 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 we'll meet that one we'll later. Obviously, I have a lot of extra thoughts about the one that came from my Patreon suggestion. Um Planets are big, y'all. I mean, it's just, there's so much space. And I don't think that any of the designs I remember covered the scale. I mean, think about think about our planet. Like, it, have you described enough stuff to fill up all of North America, well, all of Africa, all of Russia I, I think, in, Bryn, in, in an episode? What you have to uh, consider is, have you ever thought about how big any of the things we're suggesting are? Because um, oh, that's a good point. they're real big. You know, we say a mall, that's a continent. We say a wrestling ring, it's probably the size of Belgium. So (laughs) you can't see the other side of the ring because of the curvature of the earth. That's that's how big we're talking here. I see. That that wasn't clear to me. I'll I'll retract that. You know, we we, we don't even know how big the people uh, who are asking us for their planet are. That's true. That's true. This is a question. Is there this is gonna sound very stupid, even as I think about it, but I've I've started, (laughs) so I'll finish. Is there to do with a planet size? then a natural height to which things can go before they poke out of the atmosphere and it gets ridiculous. Is is there some sort of relational... I'm going to say relationship. A relational relationship between the size of the planet and how tall things are allowed to be on them. Because otherwise things are going to start getting into the... Thi- like the tallest animals that ever existed. If you were on too small a planet, would it be like, well, you can't have animals that big because they're so tall that their heads will poke out the top of the atmosphere and it'll be all sort of suffocating? <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, it so, is, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> no, I like, I like, I like I that question. Um, so the, I mean, the amount of atmosphere on a planet is related to its size and its density because its density and its size together give you its mass which affects how strong the gravity is Mm. but it's not the only factor so like you've got for example if you look at the three planets uh venus earth and mars they're all 
roughly the same size. Mars is a little bit smaller than the other two, but they've got very different atmospheres. So Earth is the atmosphere we're used to. Mars has almost no atmosphere. Now, it does have one, but it's so much thinner. It's like if you're standing on the surface of Mars, it's like being twice as high as Everest or something. You know, the consistency of the air is so thin that you you basically can't notice that it has any. But it's not quite as bad as, say, the vacuum of space. So, you know, if you build a, a colony on Mars, you don't have to worry about explosive decompression to quite the same extent. Right. Venus has a really thick atmosphere, so it's in fact larger than Earth because it's got so there's so much gas around Venus and it so you know the atmosphere stretches further from the surface of the planet. So you know, if, if we if we were professional planet designers, as two of you play on TV, we we would have audio to consider TV. audio TV. Um, <laughs> you're not a planet designer; you just play one on TV. Yeah, we'd have to consider this kind of thing. We'd have to consider what sort of atmosphere we were putting on these planets. Um, it, it's not a, it's not a discussion. I don't think I've ever heard the two of you have. No. Well, we would do if we didn't only have twenty minutes to design a planet. That's, fair. That's, That's true. Fair. That's true. Although we can't use that as a consistent excuse for any of our. Well, we only have twenty minutes. Like, well, yes, but. <laughs> That's my fault. I mean, if, if Trexel would just turn up on time for once, well, exactly. eight, eight, eight I keep hours. asking him. You know, this I'm isn't yeah. just about Trexel. I actually asked Tim to turn up. We have an eight-hour <laughs> recording session. This isn't a I thing. Would, it's the- I would pay so much money for an eight-hour episode of Stella Firma. That would oh, make me oh, so happy. Die. The wheels Mostly- would come off so quickly. <laughs> knowing how the two of you would suffer recording it. Then I'd have to actually eat, like, some kind of awful porridge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, quiet porridge that doesn't turn up on the audio. No, I mean, like, clone slurry, because we'd have to be eating in character, we'd have to go to the toilet, which see. at which point, remember, David can't get out of the room, so we'd have to That's get true. some sort of camping-like uh, toilet. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure in one episode you suggested that the chairs in the room also able to act as toilets. Yeah, but the chairs in our studio aren't. No. <laughs> no. Oh, that's we'd a good ha- point. We'd have to craft point, special yeah. chairs, special yeah. toilet chairs. <laughs> or commission. Do you think we can expense that? Ask Alex. Ask Alex if we can expense toilet chairs. He's nodding. I mean, he's crying, but he's nodding. There you go. I mean, the other super important consideration for any planet, along with the size, which you have at least paid lip service to, is how dense you want the planet, you know, uh, because that affects its gravity, which affects literally everything that happens uh, on the planet, including the consistency of its atmosphere, the inhabitants' abilities, the ability to move and mm. not collapse under their own weight just by being placed on the surface, which, mm. I'm, I, again, I'm not, not sure is something you've, you've paid a lot of attention to in the episodes. Well, a lot of our planets are, are not, if not hollow, there's certainly a lot going on in them because I think, I think we've, we've... Well, one, one was a big safe... Uh, in which there were civilizations within civilizations within civilizations all all living in the mechanisms and therefore whilst whilst the you know let's 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 say the safe is made of metal that there's also going to be so much air that even if it's quite a dense metal the fact that there's so many gaps means that it's all going to average out to let's say like limestone so there's uh, you have to sort of take that into account so, so, so are we using the planet's natural gravitational field, or does Stella Firma build gravitational technology into every planet? Do we have some sort of super sci-fi tech that can control the gravity independent of the actual mass of the planet? I think, I think that's an added extra. That's got it because, like, there's, there's the, um, there's the one, uh, the old person's planet, and I don't know if we ended up putting it in, but we definitely talked about gravity regulation and sort of turning it up and down and 
You did. I remember that one. Yes. Shifting. Yes. It. Although, you know what? I think in the end, the way we got around that what wasn't by generating gravity. It was by teleporting the planet around to near and farther away from different stars in different um, oh, situations. No. To, 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 which, yeah. Which would mean, which would mean that whilst the gravity did change, it would change the gravity no, it, it towards. Wouldn't, that the, wouldn't. But it would change the gravity. That wouldn't change to, the gravity. That's not, not on the that's planet. Not how gravity works. But no, it would cha- exactly. It would, change, it would change the gravity towards the star. So it's like in here, the gravity's changed. So you all fall off the planet in one direction towards the star which is no really... that's that's also not how that works is that not how that works no that's, well that how does it work mr not science go on so okay okay yeah i've got a, i've got a question for you bryn bryn <laughs> please, captain please. captain maths so so okay let's let's take orbit out of it because i appreciate that and the the the, the, the orbit is is a lot of it but let's just say you've got a planet in its stationary i know that means it's not a planet bryn but bear with me so <laughs> Let's say you've got a stationary rogue astronomical body and you've got it and you've got it next to, uh, let's say, a, a regular sized sun. And by regular sized sun, I mean our sun because I'm sunist. Sure. Um, sure. So 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 you've got it there. And that's, a, that's sort of a regular a regular gravity. So you take that rogue astronomical body and you don't change anything about it other than it's now next to a much, much larger sun with therefore a much higher gravity. So whilst I appreciate that part of it will be that the planet will fall into it, before that, is it possible that it could, like, pull people off of it to, out into space? Like, if you have a sudden, like, gravity-creating no. object? No. Why? Answer uh, me that. Uh, so the gravitational force on any object is governed by two things. The 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 mass that is causing the gravitational force... And love. And it's... And its distance from that mass. And so if you're on the surface of a planet, the gravitational pull on you from the centre of the planet is always going to be much stronger than any nearby star. Because although the star is potentially millions or billions of times larger in terms of mass, it is for life to even exist upon this this theoretical planet. It's also got to be far enough away that the gravitational pull of the star is less than that of the planet. Otherwise, it just wouldn't be in the first place. Exactly, uh, and yeah, and the planet can't be stationary. Like it, it, I, I told you to allow me that, yes. Finn. What did I say? Yes, <laughs> I absolutely. I appreciate that. <laughs> what do you guys think that the star does affect about a planet? Uh, so, it, it, in the very first episode, we definitely didn't create a planet. Uh, we created. I think it ended up being referred to as a trough moon. Yep. It is a trough moon, which is in the Stella Firma company handbook, class as a planet. So yes. check <laughs> sure, and sure. mate. mate. <laughs> yes. I mean, obviously, science hasn't had to classify non-spherical or non-approximately spherical objects. So, you know, that at least in theory, it wouldn't meet the definition of a planet. But I think we're so far outside the realm of current scientific understanding that we can just sort of shrug and accept it. Yeah, we're just okay. way ahead of you, really. Was, yeah. was, wasn't there a cigar comet? Uh, yes. So comets can be much more irregularly shaped than planets. Sure. Because um, they're fun. Yeah, and, and asteroids uh, uh, even more so. A comet tends to be relatively regularly shaped because of the uh, the solar forces upon it, whereas an asteroid, who knows? Um, but so the, the trough moon, we did discuss things like uh, day length and year length, which I think was the possibly the only episode that happened in. But it made me very happy that you at least considered these factors. So, so, so how how do we think that the, the day length and the year length relates to the the properties of the planet and the star of which it's orbiting around? Um, well, the year length is how long it takes to complete a full orbit, and the day length will be based on how fast the planet's spinning. 
Uh, yeah, I mean that. That's that. Absolutely. Um, I'm um, sorry. I'm, just gonna, I, I'm noticing a bit of a trend here of uh, Ben calmly uh, and succinctly answering questions correctly, which I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a fan of. Given that thus far it's two nil, and I feel like I feel like I'm being made a fool of. I, I, I don't. Want, I don't want to be petty about this, but I will. Okay. So so <laughs> well, a question to Tim then. What a follow-up question to Tim. What properties of the star and the planet control how long the planet takes to complete one one single orbit? Any like, ideas? I feel like Ben's question was easier, but okay. I was going to say, to be fair, I have, I have no idea. I have no idea. Answer away, Tim. Okay, uh, repeat the question to me. I'm going to really try and get this right. So what, what properties of the, the, the star and the planet uh, govern how long it takes the planet to complete one orbital cycle? Oh, actually, sorry, I, I do know this year. Yes, okay, I do know that. So it will be it will be the, the mass of the planet itself and the yep. gravity of the object it's orbiting around because uh, the greater uh, the gravity, the faster the planet will have to be travelling in yes. order to, to keep the orbit and not crash into the object and that will um, affect the speed and so on and so forth. Uh, yes, so that's half right. You've got the important bit right. The, the, the mass of the planet actually doesn't matter. Does it not? No. If you, there's there's several equations that apply to this situation, and when you put them all together to solve the the, the relationship, uh, the mass of the planet drops out of the equations. Um, it ends up not affecting in the same way that all objects fall at the same rate. Sure. It, for the same reason, all planets orbit at the same speed but it is very much affected by the mass of the uh, star so the mass of the star has a huge impact on how fast the planet goes around but there is a, a second factor that plays into it as well which is the length of the orbit right like the the how far away the planet is yes. from the star yes sure. absolutely so those are those are the two factors in the way yeah. that the uh, the center of a wheel is going much fast is traveling much faster sorry exactly it's traveling much slower um Slower or faster? Gosh, the centre. The, yeah, the, the centre cent- travels slower. Slower because it's got less far to go to complete well, a revolution. Yes. yes. Tim, consider the graph friend. Consider the graph friend. The graph friend. Yeah. yeah. Yes. When you, when much, you draw yes. a small circle, it goes really fast. Circle. There you go. It washes. It washes around, and then sometimes yeah. your pencil breaks, and then you chuck your pencil out. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I'm glad. Thank you. Thank you, Ben, for bringing it down to my level. <laughs> <laughs> So the mass of the star and the distance of the planet from the star, hugely important in determining the orbital cycle. The other thing that they have a huge impact on is the amount of energy that the star transfers to the planet. Uh, That energy being primarily in the forms of light and more importantly, heat. Mm. So it's quite difficult potentially to balance those two competing needs if you want to control the length of the year the the length of the uh, single orbit you've also got to think about what effect you're going to have on the climate of the planet because the further you move it as we can see in our own solar system the colder a planet is going to get well that's as proven out um in the review for that planet something we did not consider because we made soup we did absolutely Boiling soup, as I recall. The soup is one to be. Is this what's referred to as the Goldilocks zone? Absolutely, yeah. Do, do you know what the Goldilocks uh, zone is talking about? What 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 is at the exact right temperature in the Goldilocks zone? Uh, I'm going to say. Well, now 
the thing is, the temperature... Is that, is that surface temperature of the planet? or like Yeah, because that, that... that changes throughout the year. It's quite hot in England right now, but that right. doesn't mean that in winter life ceases to be. Absolutely. And it's very different at different points on the planet. A, uh, our planet spins. Uh, it spins on an axis which is about 23 degrees off from directly perpendicular to its uh, orbital motion, uh, which creates seasons, but also creates cold spots and hot spots. And the, the temperature on the surface of our planet can vary by almost 100 degrees from the coldest spot to the hottest spot, I believe. Really? I didn't know it was that much. Well, so uh, and I believe that the, the depth of Antarctica can sometimes reach minus 60, and the, the, hot, the hottest uh, spots in like the Sahara Desert can reach 50 or 50-something. 50 so it's slightly over 100 degrees hmm. variance between those two. And I found out literally today that 37 degrees, but specifically 37 degrees on the wet bulb scale, which is... Um, both heat and humidity is the point at which uh, your humans are no longer able to regulate their body temperatures. So if it's if it's on a special scale that I don't entirely understand, but humidity and heat above 37, your body can't cool you down fast enough because there's too much hot water in the air and you die. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's pretty nasty. Pretty nasty. Uh, uh, so, um, for example, Antarctica is not always in the Goldilocks zone. Whereas, obviously, the Earth as a whole is. So the Goldilocks zone is not, you know, a clear delineation of the whole planet must be exactly one temperature. Yeah. But it's saying that, you know, a significant portion of the planet is at the right temperature for 100% of the year or significant portions are at the right temperature for 100% of the year in total. Uh, and the Goldilocks zone is referring to liquid water, basically, because that's, as far as we're aware, the most important uh, factor involved in uh, a planet being habitable. Oh, so not so cold, it's frozen, and not so hot, it's gas. Exactly. There you go. So uh, Venus, for example, is too hot, even though it's technically in the Goldilocks zone. Uh, its atmosphere is so thick and heavy that all the water that exists there is gaseous. And Mars is also in the Goldilocks zone in terms of distance from the sun, but its atmosphere is so weak that all the water there has frozen. So the Goldilocks zone... Is, is, is a sort of a theoretical distance, but the practical distance is also affected by the planet's atmosphere. So wait, if it's just liquid water, doesn't that mean you could have a planet in the Goldilocks zone that just has an average surface temperature of 70 degrees? Yes. Yes, because like bacteria, like extremophile bacteria lives in like hot vents at the bottom of the ocean, which is, yeah, that kind, of, kind of that. So it's like not mammals, sure, but something. Oh, okay, life. yeah, Goldilocks is general to yeah. life, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a perfect description because obviously, yes, a, a, a planet which was 100%, you know, a semi-boiling sea would not be a great place for a human being to go on vacation. But there would be some deep-sea slugs that would be like, hot, hot dang, this is for me. Very hot Absolutely. dang. Absolutely. Uh, now, I believe we also, the trough moon, if I remember correctly, as well as uh, one of the other planets, I can't remember which one it was, uh, the trough moon, I believe, had a day that was equal to its year. Um, and one of the other planets you mentioned uh, always had the same face pointing towards the star. So it had a light side and a dark side. Yes, the the, the an animal murder life gun planet. The animal murder life gun planet. That's its course. official title. That was a very good one. Planet number three? I can't remember if it was two or three. It was one of the early ones. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was in our blue period. Yeah. <laughs> now that is actually a pretty common condition for an orbiting body to find itself in. It's known as being tidally locked, and the moon is actually tidally locked to the Earth. H- hence the Pink Floyd album. Yes. Wish you were here. Well, it- <sighs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Desperately trying to remember a Pink Floyd album title. <laughs> I got it. Well, it, it's it's not it's not quite a, a perfect thing because obviously for the moon it's tied a lot to the Earth, so it's got the same face always facing the Earth. But that's not a dark side and a light side because the light is provided by the sun. So all points on the uh, on the moon surface eventually get some sunlight, but only one side of the moon ever gets any Earth light. Sure. So so is there? Okay, bear with me. So, are there are there planets sure. that are tidally locked, and therefore it doesn't have a day? Like there isn't a day because a day is how long it takes to rotate, and it's not. So there is no day. We believe so. There's none in our solar system. It seems to be quite a common picks, or it didn't uh, happen, state. Bryn. Picks, or it well, didn't indeed. happen. We have discovered uh, as a species uh, something in the order of four hundred to five hundred exoplanets outside our solar system, but we don't know enough about them to establish whether uh, tidally locked planets actually exist. But orbital simulations indicate that being tidally locked is quite a common state for an orbital body. So it seems likely that there are planets out there mm. where, yeah, they have essentially have a light side and a dark side rather than a day a day night cycle. But it comes with its own host of problems because, uh, as I said earlier, a sun is in charge of providing uh, light and much more importantly heat to a planet. So what do you think happens when you've got a uh, planet that is tidally locked to its sun? Uh, and the key difference between the the, the uh, light side and the dark side. One so, side's hot. Yeah, one side's hot. I, again, it feels like a trick question. It's like, well, because one side's always hot and the other's always cold, which is bad for some reason. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It is. It is very bad uh, the, because um, we talked about the the variation on the Earth's surface between temperature on a tightly locked planet. That temperature variation is going to be huge. You're going to be find it very very difficult to uh, have a planet which is habitable because you're likely to get uh, an incredibly hot side and an incredibly cold side. And here we're getting into some more planetary science rather than cosmology, which is not my area of expertise, but I do know a little. Well, luckily it's ours, so you're you're covered. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, what happens if on a planet you've got an incredibly hot place and an incredibly cold place? Does the temperature differential uh, like snap it in half eventually? Like if there's a cold side and a hot side, that means it will be expanding and contracting at different like rates. Like uh, the cold side's constantly getting more and more dense and the hot side's getting more and more... Um, not dense what's what's not dense loose that sounds wrong um uh, i genuinely don't know what the word sparse sparse (laughs) that's like getting sparse so like you basically have like a lumpy weird planet that will eventually snap like when you pour boiling water into a glass and it smashes i i hadn't considered that actually i think you'd have to have a very small, very solid planet for that to be a risk, but it so does sound exciting. It's possible. <laughs> I'm not. I'm honestly not sure. Um, I'm beyond science. Any other guesses as, as to what atmospheric phenomena that our tidally locked planet might be witness to? Oh, um, wouldn't the atmosphere burn off? A small risk, yeah. If the planet gets too hot, you're going to lose a lot more atmosphere to the vac- cold, hard vacuum of space. Will it all be on um, one side? Half an atmosphere. Actually, well. Uh, uh, I mean, in a sense, yes, because the biggest problem, if you have a whole, a cold section and a hot section in a single room, what happens in the room? It becomes warm. Like, I'm in the middle. There's a cold bit and a hot bit, the middle of the room. Are you talking about convection? Points. I am talking about convection. Is it convection. wind? Is it get too windy? It's now 3-0 it's now to Ben. Just Gosh, damn home. it! <laughs> <laughs> hang on, hang on. Didn't I get half a point? I believe I got half a point. <laughs> oh, no, you did get half a point. You're Thank right. It's three you. and a half to 0.5. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so convection currents. You, it get, the planet gets extraordinarily windy if there's any sort of atmosphere to speak of. Uh, and you you will lose the atmosphere a little a little faster than you might want to. You know what? It sounds petty, but I was thinking that. And then I thought, no, Tim, that sounds stupid. It's too windy. 
<laughs> you don't want to lose any more points. <laughs> and I choked. I choked. It really would be a, a very important consideration for any planet designers. Your climate is going to affect the inhabitability of your planet. If your planet is too smooth, that's another thing that can cause winds to get everywhere. The Earth has an incredibly complex biosphere. And, you know, the variation in Earth's weather is caused by its lovely complex landscape, its variation in height, the variation in temperature, uh, and its large but not, you know, total covering of seas. So these are considerations that that one designing a planet would have to make if if we were doing it for real. Oh, right. Which we are. Uh, Okay, so we we, we started to talk about atmospheric uh, science and the atmospheric effects of some of our planets. So we've we've got an issue here. Uh, Let's go to my favourite planet that Stella Firma have designed. In my in-character persona as Yurek Brinnison, King of the Armoured Bears of Svalbard, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I ordered a planet myself from the crack design team of uh, Trexel Geisman and David Seven. And what I got uh, was not up to specifications. Uh, well, well uh, complaints on, yeah. are really not where we... Um, uh, yeah, you have to talk to the legal uh, department. Yeah. Uh... So let, let's... Ex- let, can, can we try and explain the science behind the robot, the roaming robot accountants yes. and how exactly they are warming the planet? Well, because they're radiators and radiators are warm. So, yeah. yeah. Two, two plus two equals so, water. Well, I think again we've got we've got a, a slightly fa- a failure of our imagination on on in terms of scale here. Sure, a planet is very very large. There are how, a lot of how accountants. How big are these robots? How, there are loads of them. How much heat is yeah, each they're, they're robot generating? They're regular accountant size. Let's say five foot eight. You know, they're not really tall because otherwise they wouldn't have been accountants. So they're about five foot. Apologies to any accountants listening. You're very average in height. Um, they're about five foot eight. <laughs> uh, you take that. You averagely heighted people. Um, uh, so they're about, yeah, about five for eight, uh, 180 pounds. I, I don't know why I used pounds. I have no idea how many people are in pounds. Uh, 12 and a half stone, let's say. Um, yeah, sort of regular accountants. Sure. But there are um, millions of them. Millions well, mi- of them. Like crowd, like 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 passenger pigeons in, t- in pre-19th century America. I mean, there, there, there's what, 7.4, 7.5 billion humans on Earth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how, mu- how much do you think the heat that humans generate generate contributes to the, uh, the general uh, no, no, atmospheric no, 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 conditions of the planet. Ah, yeah. uh, well, you know. Yes. Oh, I'm being interrupted. Take, okay, take okay. this, Ben. Please, take take please, him down a peg or two, Ben. Yeah, so, so please, uh, remember what you just said, the amount of heat that, that humans give off. These accounts are literally radiators. Actual radiators. It's Actual in the name. Radi- so, they so radiate. how hot is each individual accountant? Well, they're probably, I'd say, about 150 degrees. Um, but what we do is, remember, they were there to make creeks. Um, so what you'd do is you'd group accountants together at the source mm. of a, a creek you wish to make, and then you would place them at regular intervals just to keep the water flowing. And I would say there is actually there's precedent in nature for this um, in the humble bee. Uh, in the, <laughs> in the let, consider Amazing. the consider yeah, please, the humble please. bee, Bryn, uh, because bees will um, all cluster together and vibrate in order to create heat. Um, for various purposes, one one of which is to kill intruders. So if a hornet say gets into a bee's nest, they all they all cluster around the hornet and 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 grab together and vibrate, and uh, and the heat cooks the hornet. So that's art imitating life. I mean, zoolo- zoology is 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 a very far cry from my area of expertise. But I have also read this, so i i have to I have to concede you a point there. So I suppose fundamentally, um, what happens is the accountants get around the source of river and just. Just vibrate. Just vibrate. Yes, Just vibrate. The, the, yeah, their heat is generated by vibration. Did we not mention this? Yes. 
I mean, I think I think the accountant's causing rivers to start flowing is realistic. However, <laughs> we did it. We did it. Call yourself a I think I think we really need to bear in mind that the general climate condition of a hmm. planet is controlled by the how much energy the sun is providing and the thickness and composition of the atmosphere. I, unless you're covering your entire planet in a multi-layered city, I'm not sure the actual contents of the planet are going to have a big effect on the well, on the overall climate condition. No, Tell no, me but this. we weren't affecting the. Well, oops, uh, no, you you go, Tim. Sorry. No, sorry. Okay, thank you. Um, I was going to give it back to you. No, no, I, I want to say my thing. Um, so, so consider this. So if it is uh, the case that in this planet, it's just over the edge into being icy. There's snow, there's ice on the ground, you know, permafrost, let's say. So it's just over into that. You know, it's not the Arctic, but it's, it's sort of relatively into there. And then you have many, many millions of hot water sources all flowing into the sea. And water has very good um, thermal... Uh, retention uh, ability if it gets hot it remains hot for quite a while Um, so if you have constantly hot water pouring into the sea even if it's then out that's going to that's going to raise the overall temperature and and it's going to remain remain liquid surely uh, I, again, the question is scale here. Uh, There's the so of an many of them. River. <laughs> I, I, I think Bryn is actually missing on the real question, which is how do we power these accountants, which we never answered. I assume you just plug them in at the wall. Yeah, you plug me Which wall? <laughs> Who knows? But you know. <laughs> it's actually their briefcase. They plug themselves in at their briefcase, and then yeah, uh, yeah. You know. I do remember that the, the briefcases being the power sources. I, uh, that that does seem to. Did they to have be small the, nuclear the generators? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that would be that would be the most sort of stable and and, and long lasting. Yeah, small onboard power station, and because they're in water, that's the cooling system. There we go. Which we do unfortunately get into a slight uh, logical cycle there because they heat the water, but the water is also the cooling system for the battery that allows them to heat the water. So if they're too good, meltdown. Yeah, I think I, I, I see another thing. It would be important if we were to understand the real science behind these designs would be to establish how much of the planetary surface is covered by water and how much is covered by land. Uh, so that depends actually on how much the polar bears want to do business. Yes, how much business course, do you want to do, Bryn? Of course. Uh, very little, ideally. Okay, so only like two or three creeks. Yeah, two or three creeks. Just sure, enough to have a sure. few business meetings, but not too much. Now, if like, you want to say, do more business, well... Let, let's say, the, uh, let's say it's the size of the Earth. You've got Lake Victoria, everything else is land. You know, it's a lot of water, but in comparison to the size of the planet, not that much. That's a, that's a, that is a fair point. Lake Victoria is very small compared to the size of Earth. <laughs> that's a true fact, Tim stated there. A true, I, I can't, unequivocal I can't fact. I can't I can't disagree with you. Uh, okay, so I, th- I think you've answered my questions about the polar bear planet. Now, one of your planets did have a significant amount of the surface covered in lava. All, yes. all I believe. Oh, no, apart from the bit that's covered in marmalade. There was a bit that was also covered in, in marmalade. Yes. Now, early on in the life cycle of a rocky planet, we believe that they were indeed mostly a surface of lava. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have any sort of uh, ballpark estimates of, of how hot lava is in general? Oh, uh, ben? Uh, I'd like to go for about 1,200 degrees. I'm going to go for it depends on what's melted. Oh. Uh, I mean, 1,200 degrees is, is a pretty good number. Yes. It's, it's, it, yes. it's actually at the low end. Uh, I mean, obviously, it lava, as we think of it... depends what has melted. Uh, there, I mean, there is there is a sense of that. I mean, l- lava is essentially a, a term for liquid rock. Uh, mm-hmm. Rock. There are different types of rock with different melting points. So in another sense, 
I think I think there's a point each for you there. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> now, obviously, lava, as we think of it, is molten rock that has come out above the surface of the Earth and is therefore cooling rapidly. So actually, to say the temperature of lava is a slightly weird thing because it's changing rapidly because it's cooling. Should we have said the temperature so of magma? And everything. So the temperature of magma, indeed, but can be uh, hotter than uh, 1,200, in, in fact. And if the entire surface of your planet is lava, then the lava is not hitting other things to cool down. So, in fact, an entirely lava-covered planet uh, is likely to be a little bit hotter than lava uh, on Earth. You'll notice that 1,200 degrees, if we're taking that as the, as the, uh, the, the temperature figure, which seems reasonable, is not quite within what we referred to earlier as the Goldilocks zone. I'd yes. prefer you to the fact that everyone who went on that planet died. Died, yeah, that was part of the design. <laughs> it was somewhat of a murder planet. A very, we, we, we really pushed it towards Papa Bear on that one. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, in that Beyond sense, Papa Bear, the Goldilocks. <laughs> in that sense, the the science was accurate. You did make a planet where literally everyone who went there died. Yeah, and established that lava is hot. You know, I thought I, I thought I was criticizing your your planetary design skills, but I, I have I have no ability to criticize your planetary evaluation skills. They have all been all been disasters. So we don't know what we're making, but we know when it's bad. Yeah, exactly. apparently so. Apparently exactly. so. I, I can't remember the, the the mechanism by which you had marmalade existing next to lava. Well, that's there's an important point that like, the reason you don't remember the mechanism is because we didn't put one in. Yeah, um, is the short answer. But I, I have I well, yeah go, go on. for it. No, go on. No, no, okay. no, no, no. Well, I, so because they entered the planet from I think a either orbital dropship or a big slide. Um, both of those things are above the surface of the planet and. When you're leaving your kids somewhere, you usually leave them at the entrance, which implies that the actual the marmalade crash is actually not on the surface of the planet. Good point. Good point. Which is why those children lived to be orphans. Sure. So the, the the marmalade playpen was in orbit of the planet somehow. Yeah, yeah. Probably, probably. Why on not? A dedicated moon or, well, no, or something I, there, of that there type. There is a sort of a mothership that also had quite a quite a large burns unit. Uh, on yes. It as well. uh, yes, I, I remember the burns unit. An inadequate yeah. burns unit, as it uh, <laughs> transpired. Yes. Well, you know what? It's a burns nu- unit, not you've literally liquefied immediately unit. That's not you've bu- <laughs> you're not burnt. You've died. Oh yes, that is a different unit. It's a different unit. That that's yeah, that's entirely fair. A burns unit is is going to be entirely necessary on a lava planet. Uh, so we, we've talked a lot about the different uh, the different heating mechanisms we've used for planets. The different uh, and th- this very important fact about um, uh, providing energy to the surface of the planet. And na- now we're going to come. We're, we're running a bit low on time, so we're now going to get onto my own personal biggest problem so far. Miniature suns. Okay, okay, just very quickly. I am not going to answer any of these questions because I'm pretty sure David's reaction to that is, really? Miniature suns? So I'm with you on this one. All right, I well, stand alone. Okay, so so Ben Ben has abdicated all responsibility. <laughs> so we'll we'll let Coward. him attempt okay. attempt to justify miniature suns. Okay, I have two theories. And I'll start with the <laughs> I'll start with the one that I feel is more credible. Uh, it's going to blow our goddamn mind. <laughs> I'm going to redefine science for you. So, okay, so um, so a sun, a sun is a large object. Doesn't have to be large. You know, actually, my my first question to you, base question, is a sun defined by its well, a sun a sun is actually not a definition as I understand it. It's a star. A sun is just what we yes. call our star. So a yes. star isn't defined. Is it defined by its size? Um, fundamentally. Is it is, is there is it is there such a thing as this is too small to be a star 
Yes. Now, not inherently. The the limit on the size of a star is not just when it gets too small, we call it something else. Okay. It's that to be a star, it has to be undergoing the process of nuclear fusion. Okay, well, I won't, I won't and... go any further because that, 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 because this, this is where my answer lies. Sure. So I contend that what happens with a star is that there's so much gravity going on all over the place that it's all really hot and dense because when things are dense, they're hot. And when they're hot... Accurate. Yeah, so yeah. when things are dense, they're hot. So it's not about anything other than density. So if the star is made out of a much denser material than your regular sized star, then despite the fact it's quite small, <laughs> you've still got that level of density that means it's Tim. all melted. And therefore it's a star. Tim. Yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay, very quickly. You're right about the heat. Yeah. Okay. What's the other property of density that we have talked about earlier on this episode? I don't remember. Okay, it's gravity, yes. right? Do you know what happens when you get something that's like so dense? Have I created a black hole? Is a small small. star a black hole? A small, incredibly dense star is in fact a black hole. God damn it! (laughs) (laughs) Can I can I just get you to suggest, Tim, how effective a set of miniature black holes would be at providing heat and light to a planet? Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say. Black holes are not conducive to emitting heat and light. They're much more in the business of sucking it in. I mean, as someone with a master's degree, very specifically in black holes, I totally agree with that statement. Is there a way (laughs) of... of, And I I may be asking a question that can't be answered. Is there a way of having a black hole... So so there is a point where a star turns from a star into a black hole, uh, or or at least where it decides, am I going to be a black hole or am I going to be a red dwarf? What am I doing? Uh, so, so very, very, very briefly, if a star is essentially too small to become a star at the beginning, then it will be a gas giant. So there are very large gas giant planets. Jupiter, for example, is actually not very far away in the grand scheme of things from being big enough to become a star. Sure. Um, stars get much, much bigger than our sun. Uh, they can be huge. Commonly at the end of the life cycle of a star, they do collapse inwards due to their own gravity. And then there are two distinct types of very small, very dense stars. One is called a neutron star. It's not really a star anymore because it's no longer emitting heat and light, but it's called a neutron star and is slightly less dangerous than a black hole. But on the scale we're talking about, the gravitational effect of putting a neutron star or a black hole near a planet would both be extremely apocalyptic, which... It's not a phrase I thought I would say. Would it would it because... tear your matter apart at its very <laughs> fundamental level? Maybe not at the fundamental level, but certainly at the macroscopic level. Sure. A- and possibly yes. Your hands even at fall the off. microscopic level. Okay. I understand. I, 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 yeah, I think your body would be rapidly ripped apart. So can bacteria survive black holes? No. Oh. <laughs> the only thing that can survive black holes is is atomic matter. Okay. So when you say micro, you mean... And you when mean I really say survive, micro. this is a very complex... <laughs> yeah, because survive uh, is not necessarily... It's a term of life. Like, look, this proton has survived. Well, I mean, it wasn't I really mean, any, alive. I mean, anyone who wants to understand Hawking radiation, uh, get in touch with me later and I'll send you a copy of my master's dissertation because ah. that's really the level we're talking about when we're talking about the relationship black holes have with atomic or subatomic matter. Let's leave that for another time perhaps but yes uh, fundamentally 
Uh, so, so Tim, you, you you were about to propose some form of alternative yes, to neutron yes. stars or black holes. Yes, my alternative is you just take a little scoop of an existing sun. There you go, little sun. Just take a little scoop of it, like a big ball, <laughs> like a lemon baller, a lemon baller, a melon baller, and you just sort of like, whoops, there it is. And then you you know, what's it gonna do? Run away? It's the sun. It's just a little tiny chunk of sun. So this is this is this is very close to a good idea. <laughs> Wow, that's the most shocking thing I've heard. Wowee! Why do? Why is it that my outlandish stupidity is closer to science than my considered answer? Well, so I mean, a little ball of sun matter, great. Yeah, that's a perfect uh, thing to use as a fuel for a fusion reaction. The problem is, as we as we said just just now, um, you really need the heat and the density provided by the huge mass of the star to make it hot enough for. F- nuclear fusion to occur and it's nuclear fusion which gives out that energy sure so the issue you've got with your little melon ball of star stuff is that it's a great fuel but you essentially need to have it reach a certain temperature before it will start producing energy now if you're scooping it directly out of a sun and you can keep it going i mean who who are we to say what ridiculous sci-fi level technology stellar firma has access to if they can make planets maybe they can maybe they can scoop a small ball of star matter directly out of the upper layer of a star and just put it in a containment field and have it be a self-sustaining nuclear fusion reaction i have a theory i have a theory for this is there an astronomical thing and i'm using the science word of thing here I want I want to say black hole, but I mean black hole in the terms of sci-fi teleportation hole. Is there like a is there a thing through which gravity can act, and sort of like they are two you know two separate points in space, but gravity is acting through them as if it's some sort of doorway. Is is that a thing? You're asking you're asking if wormholes exist. Do wormholes exist? No. Well, that makes my second half difficult. <laughs> well, we can get into we can get into quantum, right? I mean, it's actually a more complex answer than that. The answer is if a wormhole began, the rules the laws of physics allow it to continue to exist. But how does it start is the question. But how does it start? Okay. Uh, and currently we can't think of a way unless you have negative mass, which as far as we can tell, doesn't exist in the universe. Sure. Well, let's let's say you found one. Maybe. I mean, in the we streets. have control of. We we know we have gravitational control technology at Stellar Firma Limited. True. Very so true. sure. Let that. Let's use that to make some negative mass, create a wormhole. Yeah. yeah Fantastic. Yeah. So we got one. So what you do is you take your little scoop of sun and then you plonk it on top of a wormhole, and the other side of the wormhole is is in the in in the existing mother sun. And therefore, it's sort of the 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 gravity and therefore density that you would need, and, and it's all coming through the wormhole, basically. Uh, unfortunately, you have just connected your sun via yes. wormhole to your planet, and and as previously stated, gravitational effects will get transferred through, through the wormhole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, pretty I much. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, fair enough. So well, you know what? If you don't ask, you don't get, Bryn. So I mean, again, you're thinking, you're being creative, you you. You're close to a good idea, in fact. Um, so we're practically out of time, but but I will mention that the, the idea that, that Tim is blindly grasping towards is pretty similar uh, to the nuclear fusion experiments that have been going on for the last 30 to 40 years in terms of generating a self-sustaining nuclear fusion reaction in a reactor on Earth as a form of power generation. Now, this is a technology that uh, we haven't mastered 
and you know reports have been saying oh it's about 30 years away for about 40 years now and for some reason those messages are coming from 80 years in the past something's (laughs) gone very it's real weird over there something's wrong but there, there, there is a form of nuclear fusion technology which essentially takes a bunch of star matter i.e mostly hydrogen and helium um a scoop of star matter uh contains it in a very strong uh magnetic field which both keeps it in place and causes it to spin and in theory if you can get the magnetic field to do both those things strongly enough you could achieve a contained self-sustaining fusion reaction so we're not too far away from idea of our idea of little miniature suns. There you go. So what you're saying is I'm correct. I think if we've learned anything in today's uh, special on the science of Telefirma, it's that you are correct approximately one-fifth as often as Ben is. Ah, that seems about right. And that, I think that's... We fit our roles as <laughs> David and Trexel at that point. Uh, also, it's perfectly viable because, as we know, stellar firma does happen at least 30 years in the future. Yeah, at least. So we will have nuclear fusion at by very then. Least. I, again, an- another good point. Yeah, if, if, if fusion technology is 30 years away, we, we are forced to assume that stellar firma has access to it. Unless those scientists are liars. Quick, quick, just a real quick one before we end, because I do appreciate we're out of time. Um, what's time travel and how does it work? Just quickly, just quickly, just quickly, how, how does it time travel? How does it work? It doesn't. Okay, well, there you go. Ask an answer. Thank, thanks, guys. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed our little chat. Uh, listeners, let us know what you thought. Let us know if you've got any uh, follow-up questions. Uh, I'm generally found hanging around the Discord at all hours of the day and night. And let us know if you enjoyed this special. Maybe we can do uh, another one at the end of the next season uh, if we've got anything more to say. And if uh, any of us have felt like uh, taking the time to prepare notes for that one and actually uh, have the ability to talk about stuff with some knowledge of things that happened more than a week ago. (laughs) Well, we can but dream, Bryn. We can but dream. I imagine that technology is at least 30 years at away, least, to at be least honest. At least 30. Yeah, no, no, certainly, definitely. But this show does t- take place the 30 years in the future. So, yeah, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Thank you very much for joining us, everyone. Uh, and I hope we will see you all back for the uh, soon-to-arrive season two of Stella Firma. Bye, everybody. Have a chill day. Goodbye, funky people. See? Bye, guys. Smooth. Very smooth. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. It's Imogen, the voice of Imogen from Stella Firma. Today, I'm here to tell you about Woe Begone, a podcast launched on the RQ Network. Woe Begone is a weekly horror sci-fi audio drama series about the nature of power and the implications of linear time. Woe Begone follows Mike Waters, who discovers a mysterious and violent online game. What begins as an exploration of an alternate reality game with real-life consequences 
quickly becomes a search for the technology that makes the game possible. Each episode has a unique soundtrack composed by creator and writer Dylan Griggs. Listen to Woe Begone, that's woe, full stop, begone, wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out woebegonepod.com for episodes and transcripts. Have fun and see you later.